Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. I'd love to introduce to you my friend Faith. Faith, come on up. She's asked not to be eclipsed by the lectern. They make them small out in Musselboro, don't they, Faith? Got your high heels on. Faith, is, along with her husband, Scott, leads the church, the Lighthouse Central Church in Musselboro, who we have loved getting to know and becoming friends with over these last couple of years. Um, Faith, you've got a couple of boys, teenage boys, so you live in a house full of men, even with a male dog. Um, you're, you're, you're the person that keeps the ship upright, aren't you? Yes. You are. <laughs> Faith uh, brought God's word to us before, but not at the 10.30. We're just really excited about what God's given to you, what you're going to bring to us. I'd love to pray for you and then let you have the floor. Father, we thank you so much that this morning we come into your presence with confidence because of Jesus. Thank you that we belong in your presence. And Holy Spirit, we ask just now that we would know you very much filling us speaking to us, illuminating your word through faith and changing our lives. We give you freedom to do what you want to do this morning. We give to you all the situations and circumstances of our lives, the people, the places. And we say that they're available to you this morning for you to do what you want to do. And we pray for faith. We thank you for how she loves you, Jesus. We thank you that she's been listening to what you have to say. Pray that you duly encourage her heart. Give her your peace and give her your courage and boldness as she brings to us the very words of God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. It's actually lovely to come back here again and again and see more faces I recognize, most of whom I think I can just about put names to now, but not all of you. So I apologize if I meet you this morning and I do, I should know your name and I don't. Forgive me for that. Okay, so you're in the middle of learning how to stand on the shoulders of giants. Is that not true? Okay, so about two of you and the rest of you are not sure. That's okay. Um, I really enjoyed being through there. This, have you been through there, that 9, 9.30? It's an awesome commitment to get up and be at church for 9.30 in the morning, I think. They, they sing good. They really do. They don't hardly need musical accompaniment. They just, they're really cool. And we were talking this morning about family and being a family together on mission through there. And um, I was telling them that I grew up in Perth. I'm actually Scottish. I know I don't have a completely Scottish accent. There's a story to that, but I am totally Scottish. And I grew up in Perth in a street where my mum would take us out in January when it seemed to snow a lot more then. I know a couple of years ago we had all that snow, but it was like that almost every winter I remember as a child. And we used to go up and down the street and check that all our neighbours had 
what they needed. They were all older. I don't know why, but everyone apart from us was, a, was quite elderly. And we would go to their houses and say, what, do, you, do you need anything? Have you run out of anything? Are you okay? Have you got family checking on you? And actually, I can remember it would come up on the news and they would say, go and check on your elderly neighbors. And I don't know if that still comes up on the news and I can almost guarantee there's not as much of that going on. Why is that? I mean, I'm only 45. That's only maybe 35 years ago. It's not 30 years ago. It's not that many years ago. And some of you might have visited cultures or come from cultures where people live much more closely, not only with their own blood family, but with whoever's living round about them. If any of you grew, did any of you grow up really knowing your neighbors in and out of each other's houses, having lots of family in the same street round about you? This is Edinburgh, so I would have expected about that number. I know I've been to Ghana a number of times, and it amazes me to watch, if you go out into a village community especially, to see people all living round a commune, sharing whole, fa- whole sort of groups of families sharing a kitchen. It doesn't look like what we would call kitchen, but there's a definite kitchen thing going on. Sharing a bathing facility, just sharing stuff, and that's part of life. It's very, very interesting. So this morning, as we're learning to step on the shoulders of giants, I'm just going to give away the end at the beginning and say what we're going to learn is that they lived like family, like people who really knew each other and saw the best and the worst of each other, who supported each other in a way that our culture doesn't always teach us to. So we're going to look at a bit of that. It was Isaac Newton who coined this phrase, standing on the shoulders of giants, because he said, if I have seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And Isaac Newton obviously is known for the law of gravity and probably lots of other things. I'm not, my physics is limited, distant. Um, And he could have said, hey, hey, look at what I've done. And yet he acknowledged I've only managed to do this because of the people before me who've broken ground, made discoveries, proposed things that were different, even when people didn't listen to them. And actually, when you get into the book of Acts, what we see is the stories of people. They are, in many ways, examples of spiritual mothers and fathers, but I wonder how they felt. I doubt Aquila got up in the morning and thought, I am a spiritual father. My examples shall last for hundreds of years. He probably just felt like a guy, didn't he? I don't know what guys feel like in the morning, so let's do Priscilla. I imagine Priscilla woke up in the morning and I met, I bet, was she a spiritual giant? Yes, in one sense. But she was also just an ordinary woman who probably woke up and thought, I need to get water, I need to get food, I need to cook breakfast. I need to go farm, I need to go make tents. I don't know all the things that she might have done. But what was there in their lives that's been recorded in the word of God so that we can learn from? Because that's how you stand on the shoulders of something. You learn what those people knew and what they did. And you use that as a foundation to do something similar, but in your context. Okay, so we're going to do a bit of that today. So first of all, we're going to have a little infomercial about Aquila and Priscilla, who some of you will have heard of, probably most of you, and that's good. They were a fantastic couple. Here's things we know about them. They were Jewish converts to Christianity. So they shared that in common with the Apostle Paul, who is about to come and live with them in Acts 18. 
They lived and planted churches in Gentile cities, so in cities that weren't inhabited by people who were Jewish. So they had done cross-cultural mission. And we know they lived in Rome, Corinth, Ephesus. They're always mentioned together in scripture, which is interesting. They're never mentioned individually, okay? So they were very clearly a team, a married couple, but also very much working together. And what is also interesting in light of both when they lived and when the Bible stories about them are written is that half the time they're called Priscilla and Aquila and half the time they're called Aquila and Priscilla. It would have been the cultural norm for the man's name to be put first. And so most likely her name's first because she was a significant leader in the church in her own right. Just, there you go. Bits of information about Priscilla and Aquila. So, what else do we know about them? Well, in Romans 16:3, Paul says of Priscilla and Aquila, they are fellow workers together with me. And the Greek word, fancy Greek word coming up, synergos, is not surprisingly the word that we get the word synergy from. So they were working with Paul in such a way that it just flowed. But I'd like to pause for a moment and say most of you come from a family. That's a joke. All of you come from a family. Did everything always flow well in your family all the time? Some of you probably come from really quite nice, healthy, functioning families. Some of us don't, and that's okay. But in a nice, healthy, functioning family, does everybody get on all the time? No, it's only in artificial plight families where people don't really know each other that they get on all the time. In families with a system where there's no confrontation, that's not necessarily a healthy thing. But I'll not say any more about that. But in most families, there's just a, a time to, f- whoops, sorry, time to fall out and a time to make up. And in a lot of the falling out and making up, we, really, we grow together. How do you learn to forgive one another if there's nothing to forgive? How do you learn to bear with one another, Galatians, if there's nothing to bear? We learn all those things when we really live life together, which is what a healthy family do. Okay, so when Paul says, they are my fellow workers, he doesn't mean that everything was okay all the time. He meant whatever happens, we work through it, and we stick together. We've got a vision in common. We've got values in common. We can forgive and love and bear with one another. Wonderful. Okay, so before we start reading Acts 18, let's just remember Acts 17. So Paul has been in Athens, and in Athens, Paul's on his own, and he goes to share the gospel with the Athenian philosophers which I think he gets received. It's a bit like a TED Talk situation where everybody gets up and has their five minutes where they purport their thing and then everyone goes, oh, that's very interesting. Next. How many of you have watched a TED Talk? Just checking. You totally should. They're really interesting, really, on all sorts of subjects. They're just like little talks from smart people on interesting subjects. I've watched dozens because I really find them interesting. I don't actually remember that many, but at the end of almost every one, I think that was very interesting. Paul was the guy who healed the sick, raised the dead. People loved him or hated him, but they didn't go, oh, that was interesting. So this would have been a really quite a tough experience for Paul. I know we're British, so we're kind of used to that experience. We're used to people going, that's nice. But he wasn't used to that. And if you read the previous 
stuff in Acts, you'll see that. Paul tends to be the guy who has to escape by being lowered in a basket and things like that because he's obnoxious and he's in your face and he, he is like Marmite. You either love him or hate him, it seems. Okay. And when he comes to Acts 18, he comes into something different, but he comes into something very effective, and that is how Priscilla and Aquila do life. So let's start reading in Acts 18, verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul comes into Corinth, straight out of Athens, and he meets this couple who love Jesus just like he does. And what's the first thing they do? They say, oh, we've got some stuff in common. Why don't you come and live with us? Why don't you come and work with us? Why don't we do ministry together? That's quite intense, isn't it? Think about that. Think about meeting somebody who's a Christian, and you're a Christian, and they say to you, this is great, why don't we live together? Why don't we work together? Why don't we spend Saturdays and Sundays together? Why don't we, it's quite a lot, isn't it? I don't know, just, it's not very British, is it? I'm just saying, no one's ever invited me to live with them apart from Scott. (laughs) Okay but they share life together. When you're working together in a business, you're really sharing stuff. There's financial highs and lows, there's the day the order doesn't come in, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening. They're living in a community. Now, I'm not suggesting that all Christians need to actually physically live in the same location as other Christians in great big communes. I know Christians for whom that works, And that certainly, my house feels like a big commune a lot of the time, especially on a Saturday and a Sunday morning. I wake up and go downstairs. I'm quite an early bird. And uh, quite often there is miscellaneous long boys. They're all long, um, lying on the sofa. When they lie on my sofa, do you know when I see them, the first thing I think is not, how lovely. I think, why do they never put a sheet on the sofa before they sleep on it? Because they're sweaty and they're teenage boys. And sometimes I have to sort of go into the room backwards and because they all sleep in their pants. What's that about? Do they not, why do they not bring pajamas with them? But they don't. Yeah, I have notes and still I share too much, right? So there we go. So they really share life together. Let's go on and see what else they did before I get myself into more trouble. So in verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they, sorry, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, just the sort of thing an apostolic person would say to a bunch of people who are not interested in Jesus, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent of it, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. You've got to like Paul. And um, I don't think Paul was easy to live with. I doubt it. 
people don't receive the gospel, he could have just moved on. That's what we would all do, isn't it? We wouldn't say anything. We would just move on. We would just shake the dust off our feet, so to speak, and we would move on. But Paul feels the need to stop and say, excuse me, by the way, your blood be on your own heads. And if you don't want to listen to the message about Jesus, then I am off to see someone who will listen. He's a bit obnoxious. He is. I'm just saying that is quite, that is a bit in your face. And if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I'm sure it'll all work out. But, But the thing is, there's something attractive about Paul that people like working with him but I would say of all the things I see in Acts that Paul is his best in community on his own like you see it when he first gets saved he just kind of goes off and starts doing stuff and um, he's a hot potato and even the other Christians the apostles when you read Acts you can see they're a bit like go and you have him go and you have him I mean there's a bit where they actually send him away isn't there they put him on a ship (laughs) And then there was peace in the churches or something, it says. And you think, yes, I, yeah, I recognize that person. But he is also the person who initiates church planting and people coming to Christ like nobody else. He is very much an acquired taste. But Priscilla and Aquila have shared their life with him. They've shared their business with him. They've helped to support him. And now when Silas and Timothy come to town, they become part of the extended family. They all start working together. Paul had already been working with Silas and Timothy. They were like his guys. And I don't know if they came to physically live with Priscilla, Aquila, and Paul, but they would have been around. And do you know what's great is Silas and Timothy come with some financial support because you notice Paul stops working because it says he devotes himself to preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. But they also bring encouragement. We can tell when we read the letters of First and Second Thessalonians and Thessalonica was somewhere that Silas and um, Timothy and Paul had been, that they bring some news to Paul that encourages him. When you read the Thessalonian letters, you can see that. And family are meant to encourage us. The thing is, when someone doesn't know you says, oh, that's very good, those of us with, without a huge sense of self-esteem can often think, yeah, well, it's easy for you to think because you don't know me. Like, I don't know what you're thinking right now. I'm sure some of you are thinking, is it going to be tea? And some of you are thinking, that's very interesting. At least I hope some of you are. But truthfully, you don't know me. And if all we ever do is this, you're never going to know me. You're going to hear information from me. But if you're really going to really know me, you'd have to be around me a bit, wouldn't you? And that's what Silas, Timothy, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla did. They really shared life. And that's the whole missional community thing, is that we would be a a big family, families who share life together. But that is actually quite a costly thing to do, isn't it? But they were doing it. Okay, get back to that in a minute. Verse 17, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. What I love about this family is they very quickly change tack. This is quite a big church, and I'm just thinking of how hard it is sometimes in our church to change things. Like I can remember when we changed the the meeting time of our Sundays. Like some people left. Like left, not many, but some people left. We don't like that. It doesn't suit us. 
And people complained, and then people liked it, and then people hated it. I had not expected the massive backlash from just moving time, which we did for various good reasons. I thought they were good reasons. But a family can say, let's watch that DVD. Oh, no, let's watch that one. A family can say, yeah, we usually do brunch on a Saturday. Let's do it on a Sunday. And it's just easier in a small group of people to move things. And there's something about being contextual and cultural that is often easier to do in family units than it is in a great big plump of people. That's what I think. Just telling you because it doesn't actually say that in the Bible, but it is just my opinion. Okay, but what's also interesting is that Paul goes from the synagogue model of Paul is obviously an ex-Jew and he's used to going into the synagogues and telling them, you know, the Old Testament, but hey, Jesus has come and da da da. And then he decides to stop doing that because it's not working out so well, as we know by what he tells them. And he goes next door and he starts to share with a household. And you know what's really interesting is in verse 8, what happens next is Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. He moves from the synagogue to the house next door and a household from the synagogue become Christians. What's that? The household model worked really well. They were already living in households, in large extended units. We're used to nuclear family. They would be by and large have been living in much bigger groupings. So Paul changes what he does, which fits in with the way that the Corinthians live their life. And what's interesting, because the families are all close, they start to share the gospel with each other and it's natural. I come from a family that weren't Christians. We never went to church when I was growing up. Never, almost never. Just like if school made us, did I ever go to a church. I couldn't quite figure it all out, to be honest. It was very, very foreign to me. But as soon as I became a Christian, the first people that I told were my mum, my dad, and my sisters. Now, now, both my sisters, their husbands, their children, my mum, my stepdad, are all Christians. Scott's parents, Scott. I just told all the people who were closest to me. And you know one of the reasons they listened to me was first of all because I was close enough to them, but secondly because they watched me live it out. And I have to say, that would have to include the phrase, mistakes and all. I'm not going to go into any of my mistakes because I was only 18 when I became a Christian and I don't want to share with you the kind of mistakes that I made when I was 18. I don't well know you well enough. But uh, if you ever want to do that sometime, you show me mine, I'll show you yours. Let's see. What does it say up there? Oh, nice, very good. So they did the extended household thing. Point four is that they adapted their method to the culture and context which I've gone through. And then let's read on. In verse 9, it says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and he said, Don't be afraid, keep on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. They were word and spirit people. We know that from the rest of Paul's life. Paul healed, he delivered, he did all the things that John 14, 12 commands. Jesus said, the things that I do, you shall do also, and greater things at least will you do because I go to the Father. Jesus had gone to the Father. They did the stuff. They were spirit people. 
Why would God appear to you in a vision to tell you not to be afraid and not to leave? Probably because you were frightened and thinking of leaving. And there's nowhere in the Bible or in what Paul had of the Bible that would have given him that instruction. So it's good to be word and spirit people because sometimes we need a word from God that speaks right into our situation. So think about that culture where they were. They were a team, they were family, they shared life together. They could change to reach out to different people in different contexts. They were able to adapt. They were word and spirit people. Think about all of that. Is that what UK church culture is like in the main? Not completely, especially not the family bit. Why is that? Why do we struggle? Now, some of you don't know what I'm talking about, and you're like, I love church. I'm in a group in my church. You probably call it a missional community like we do. The people in my missional community, they love me. I was sick, and they visited me. You know, she had a baby, and I bought her a gift, and she was so happy, and we all get on great. And if that is your church experience, wonderful. That's not everyone's church experience. Do you know why? It's because we're British. It does. It gets in the way. Why does that get in the way? Because here's what's in our culture. Consumerism and individualism. Romans 12 2, Paul instructs us not to be conformed to the image of this world. What does our world, our culture struggle with? Consumerism. I need, I want, I just need this. If only I could get that. Me time, I, I, me. And perhaps mine, but mine, me and mine would be quite a small group of people. And that would be just about it. And that we are all brought up with very much in a consumer society. A society that manages to be in as much debt nationally and individually as we are has to have bought a whole load of stuff that it probably didn't need. Especially, no. I won't say any more on that. Individualism. Why is it that my mum took us out <laughs> with a sledge full of stuff from Willie Lowe's for my neighbours and people don't really do that anymore? Because my mum didn't think of us as individuals. She thought of us as a neighbourhood and she was concerned about her elderly neighbours. Do you care about your neighbours? You probably would if you knew them and do if you do know them. But there's something in our culture that says a good neighbor is someone who keeps themselves to themselves. It's a bit rude, isn't it, to be visiting people and asking them if they want help because it implies they might need help. And God forbid that we should imply to someone that they might need help. Think about it. That's how we operate, isn't it? As individuals. And individuals leads to that independent spirit. I'll do it myself. I'll do it my way. I would think a lot of church splits and people not being able to be part of church comes from that. Church is God's plan A to reach the world. That church would live as family and team and be vulnerable and love one another and bear with one another and forgive one another and show themselves to one another. That's God's plan A for the world. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. But it just is God's plan A. So if you're not part of a, a church family of some kind, why is that? Will I just sit at home and watch God TV? That's not your church, that's a TV. Just saying, I'd like to say that. I like to say that quite often, actually. There we go. Unless, of course, okay, I know what some of you are thinking, well done, unless, of course, you're housebound and you cannot get out, etc. But in which case, why aren't some people going around and doing church with you? So our culture teaches us to keep ourselves to ourselves. 
Our culture teaches us not to show how we feel quite often. Our culture teaches us not to burden other people with our stuff, not to be needy. And yet the Bible says they shared life together. They lived with one another. They ministered together. They traveled together. The giants lived together. They knew what each other looked like first thing in the morning. They shared toilets. In fact, they probably didn't even have toilets. I didn't want to think about what they had. They shared food. They shared financial issues. They probably had some one or two little problems with their kids, just like we can do with ours. They shared that with each other. Here's what some of my observations to close. I'm not very good at the time thing. When do you finish, like, doing this? Whenever. Did... I'm not sure what it means. Are you fed up yet? Do you not, have you normally had tea by now? I know. But there is nothing worse, is there, than someone, like, comes to speak in your church and you realize they don't know when lunchtime is and they're just going to speak forever. I'm not going to do that. So here are some of my observations. To really live life as extended family, which inside of a church like this means you couldn't possibly be doing that with all of each other, but you will be doing that within some group in your church, some missional community. It means this. It, it's real and it's authentic. That is the best thing about living life as family. It's also the worst thing. I have this group of people who come um, to my house for a meal every Wednesday and they do this to come in and out of my life at other times and I've said to them you are welcome they are my little group of people at the moment who are doing that and then later on at some point in the evening the, mission, the rest of the missional community who've a lot of them been doing that we all gather together that means that Wednesday which is my busiest day and quite often there's lots of thinking and organizing in it I come home from work and they're all there I don't know why they're there. They don't come when I tell them to come. They come early because they really like being in my house, I think. But I quite often think, oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> but do you know what I've learned is being real and being authentic means sometimes I walk in and go, oh, for goodness don't, don't talk to me for 15 minutes, especially if you've got like a problem. Just, I need a cup of tea. And the thing is, I didn't do that day one, but by about month three, I was just saying, okay, Enough now, time out. <laughs> quite, quite rude. Because I do get snappy when I'm grumpy. Are any of you snappy when you're grumpy? You know how some people close in and be quiet? That is the wise way to go. Read Proverbs. Just snapping at people is not good. You feel the same way, but people know. But you know what's really great is that their senior church leader who does the sort of thing you're watching me do now is real like they are gets grumpy like they do, has bad days occasionally, just like they do. And they watch me interact with my kids. And, um, you know, they have seen it occasionally. I won't mention who, but occasionally one of my teenage sons will come in and he's grumpy and he's very like me and just processes it out loud. So I'm in, in the kitchen making the meal, whatever, and he comes in from work and he says, is there anything to eat? And I said, well, there will be, but it will be ready in 15 minutes because I need to cook it. And he said, oh, there's never anything to eat in this house. Just never anything to eat, at least not anything good. And off he goes. And then this person who had turned up early, admittedly, I could tell they were just a little bit taken aback. And I stood and thought, I, thought, I wonder I should have handled that 
But actually, I know that that is a fire it's best not to poke. So I just handled it by saying nothing, which is obviously... I don't ever run parenting courses or give advice on parenting. I, I just don't. I don't think it's wise. But you know what was great? Is he began to see some real family life. Do you know the most common thing that people in my church say to me about parenting is they say, Faith, we're so glad that you're so real. And, and I'm not sure that that's a good thing, but I just figure it's the best way because if you're going to let people into your life, they're going to find out really soon. So they watch us. And it's real and it's authentic. But you know what is great? It's when as people are getting to know Jesus or coming around your church, they get sucked into family. And family helps people walk the ups and downs of a life with Jesus and it holds them fast. Sunday meetings don't hold us fast. Most of us, remember, we all have been immersed in a consumer culture. So most of us approach Sunday meetings in terms of, I like this bit, but I don't like that bit. And I wish they wouldn't do this, but I'm glad they do that. And if they do too much of what I don't like, I think I'll go and find somewhere that does it better. Seriously? Hello. Um, But family isn't like that. They don't come to my house because of the great show that I put on. They come to my house because it's real. And what I've found really interesting is they've all opened up one by one, and become much more real themselves. And we've all watched each other grow. Love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, give each other rouse, <laughs> etc. Of course, I give the most rouse, but I think that's fair enough because it's my house, my kitchen, and it's mainly boys in the, my group that come for dinner. And I find part, present company obviously accepted that boys need direction in the kitchen. That's what I find. Right, I'm speaking to the wrong crowd. My church, the boys need direction in the kitchen. Just things like whose turn is it to do the dishes? Stuff like that. But family holds them. It holds them because I expect them to do dishes because I tell them that they're family. I expect them to learn where the plates and the cutlery go because they're family. I expect them to understand that sometimes I'm grumpy because they're my family but they can expect a lot of me as well. 